Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of the one Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who, those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, and the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thanks, Beth. 
passage uses with pride and arrogance. Chosen my words carefully, I think. But pride is not a virtue. I say these words knowing what month we're in. We live in a society now which celebrates pride in its month of June. It's easy like passages like this when it bleeds with this idea of pride and shaking one's fist or attitude towards God. You could come to this passage and I call it T-ball preaching and preach to an audience which is not here. For the years that I have pastored, I have found that you find a passage that might appeal to another audience, meaning the audience that's not here, it proves to be rather unfruitful. If you've been here for a period of time, you know that when we come upon a text, we recognize that while the text, the scriptures are teaching us of the trajectory, in this case, the trajectory of arrogance and pride, it is so easy and so tempting to look outside ourselves and apply it to another audience. The aim of every attempt that when we come to gather together is to read the scripture to convict ourselves. And so I think I mention it for that very reason that when I say pride is not a virtue, it is easy for us to recognize what month we are in the world and then apply the truths outside of ourselves, but rather to forget that it is meant and written precisely for its reader. Pride is not a virtue. And as the people of God, we should be so convinced of why it is not a virtue and fear for ourselves its trajectory. So with that said, I won't labor anymore and I will go right into it. Because there is a trajectory that the writer is trying to labor for us to recognize that's not just helpful for the father of a family to recognize or the mother of a family to recognize or for a child to recognize, a boss, a co-worker. The trajectory of arrogance within an individual is disastrous for families, schools, workplaces, for the world as a whole. You can see it begin in verse 1. I'm going to have to labor here for just a moment to stress its significance. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we see the beginnings or the, the seeds of arrogance laid. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said... I have gotten a man-child, what is man-child, with the help of the Lord. It's unfortunate, and I, I don't want to labor too long here, but I do have to work a little bit here to show where the seeds of arrogance are already being laid. If you're reading a different translation like that, maybe of a, a King James or an NIV or an ESV The translators are trying to help make some interpretations for you that when you read Genesis 4, 1, it does not read like the NASB. Now the man had relations. 
It actually will read, now Adam had relations with his wife. I think that is unfortunate. For we know that as we watch movies, that when the author, when the, 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 the director wants us to focus on a particular individual, he uses his equipment called the camera to turn the lens onto whom might be speaking so that we might be, un, or be unhindered from focusing in any other direction but merely on the one who's talking. Fortunately, the scriptures are not a movie. And so what the writer has to direct the individual's attention is the pen. And so in the, in the writing, it does read not now the man had relationships with his wife Eve. It has rather now, now the man. Immediately as the reader, if you understand this, you're wondering, well, it's Adam. Why didn't he say man? While he is trying with his with literary device to turn the lens onto the attitude of Eve. You'll notice, just to make me stress this point a little bit further, at the conclusion of this scenario, as we watch the seed of trajectory of arrogance take place, at the end of the account, he flips it. So when you read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, Eve is no longer mentioned, but rather you see Adam had relations with his wife again. Literary devices used to show and direct the, the reader's attention on the particular individual that he desires. That's the first thing that I have to labor at showing. The second thing I need to labor at showing is two words. First word is gotten. I have gotten a man-child. I'm going to, from this point, call man, the man-child man. Right? That's the emphasis of which... Eve is revealing here, she has gotten, what's a, another way to translate it, like gotten, another way to translate it would be, I have created, it's this idea, I have created a man. And then she goes on, and the, word, the next word that I want to show is with. And the word here, with, is, is I. Uh, Contrastive? Not, no, no, it's not contrastive. It's, it's showing uh, alongside with or equality of similar likeness. And so at first glance, man, I wouldn't want to be a translator. Because when the translators are trying to be faithful to this, the original text and then convey these truths, camera lens is being placed upon Eve and there's an attitude here. What is this attitude? I have created a man like the Lord. You're going to notice at the end, her song, her message changes. It's the beginnings of seeds of arrogance in the beginning of the whole situation. The whole scenario of seven generations put before us shows us the trajectory of this arrogance that is birthed in Eve her son Cain, and ultimately to Lamech. This is a rare privilege that you and I get to have to see the significance of arrogance in an individual's life, in their children's lives, and the generations that follow. Oh, there's much to be learned for ourselves, to fear for ourselves that we might walk in such a way. And so it begins. 
poor Abel. Verse 2, the kid doesn't even get a name. He's not a man. He's rather called the brother. Look at verse 2. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was, keeping a, was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. You're going to notice as you read through this whole scenario, Abel's always called brother Abel. Where is your brother, Cain? He's always known as the kid. He tags along, so to speak, with Cain. He never speaks. He's never one who uh, is saying anything in the narrative until, rather, it's too late. They both have two occupations. His, the keeper of the flocks, and Cain, the tiller of the ground. Just like Adam was the tiller of the ground, so Cain takes up the possession of the, the occupation of his father and tills the ground. Verse 3, we see the scenario take place where the seed that where it once started with the mother now begins to take and manifest itself in the life of Cain. Verse 3, so it came about. In the course of time, the king brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Appointed time, the right occasion appointed by God, they go back to the gate of the garden to make themselves available to show and sacrifice in a form of worship before the Lord. Verse 4, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord regarded, had regard for Abel and for his offering. Verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, he has no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. The reader recognizes it, that something has occurred. Because there are two offerings that are presented before the Lord, but one is clearly acknowledged and the other one totally disregarded. The reader often, the reader immediately should be asking why. It's rather simple. It's not what they gave that was the problem. It's the measure of what they gave which was the problem, which reflected their inner position before God. Cain gives an offering. Token worship. Merely goes to the formality of honoring the Lord. And so he brings an offering. Abel, on the other hand, contrasted with Cain, gives us the significance of Cain's offering, but also the significance of his own. Verse 4. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings, meaning those who were first of his livestock and of their fat portion. Essentially, what did Abel do? What did he bring before the Lord? His very best. What's significant about Abel, he never speaks until it's too late. Rather, it's his blood that speaks. But when he comes to give his offerings, he gives that which is the first of his his livestock, which symbolizes, when we go into Exodus and Leviticus, as God shows that the first is 
of the livestock is his. It forced Abel to be dependent upon God to provide him more. And so when the goat gave a new goat, he took that new goat to the Lord and gave it as an offering, forcing himself to be dependent upon God to get more goats. If there's going to be any more prosperity that you give me, Lord, first, it's you who gives me prosperity. And to show my dependence upon you, I give you the first. And not only the first, the best. The emphasis is purposeful. As the writer has put before us, Cain, in contrast, merely brings an offering. As a result of this, Cain sees the little brother. God has the audacity to honor the little one. I am the man. His countenance falls. He becomes very angry. And the Lord, who has observed his offering, exercises grace. Look what happens in verse 6. The Lord said to King, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, notice, notice this. Jewish literature is fun. When a writer is trying to prove a point, look at how many times he uses the word you, 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 you. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. There's a responsibility when it comes to genuine worship that it depends upon you, Cain. Do what is right, and you do well. Sin is crouching at the door. This is grace. Heed my instruction. Be dependent upon me, just like your little brother. And you'll do well. Yeah, it's interesting with Cain throughout. You're going to see the seed of arrogance take hold and manifest itself in Cain. Cain never responds well to the Lord. He doesn't even, the writer doesn't even give us time to see if Cain even contemplates this grace of God's word given to him. Look at verse 8. Cain told Abel, his brother, it came about when they were in the field, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Oh, he's angry. If God, you're not going to honor my offering... I'll just solve a problem. You'll get one. And I'll eliminate the one who brings you the best. Therefore, you'll have no means to choose. And I will get regarded. Purposeful, thoughtful, deliberate. Here's the word of God's instruction and acts purposely contrary to it. This is what we call arrogance. I'm the man. Honor me. Verse 9. Remember uh, last week when Adam and Eve sinned, hide in the garden? The Lord God cries out, Where are you? God know fully, knowing fully where they are at. The same scenario takes place. God has seen this all take place. The seed of arrogance take hold and manifest itself in Cain's life heart against his brother. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why, where, verse 9, where is 
Abel, your brother. Man, this family knows this question. And he answers just like his parents. But in his case, it sounds a little bit like his father. He said, I do not know. Am I, bro- am I my brother's keeper? The nerve. Uh, this is a condescending response to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Why it's condescending is because as you read the scriptures thus far from here and you continue to read, the scriptures more than adequately show God is the keeper. Or another way, God is the protector. In fact, the nation of Israel responded and worship regarding God's means of protecting his people. In Psalms 121, you see this emphasis take place. Look, Israel. Look, Israel's protector does not sleep or slumber. The Lord is your protector. The Lord is a shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day and the moon by night. The Lord, he's the one who will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect you in all you do now and forevermore. Am I? You hear it? Am I my brother's keeper, protector? Where were you? The seed of his mother's arrogance has now taken and manifested in his own heart. That now, just like his father, Adam, he accuses God. Adam did. It's the woman you gave me. It's your fault. Cain now is doing it as well. Where were you, God? Verse 10. And he said, what have you done? Same question he asked his parents. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There's some hope here. The nation of Israel is going to need it because they have been oppressed when they hear these words for 400 years from Egypt. And God does see those who are oppressed and hears their cries. Abel's blood that has been spilt out of vengeance and anger, God hears and responds. Immediately the reader must ask the question, how does God respond to such situations? When Cain was angry, he was gracious to provide word. When he killed Abel, how does God respond? Yet again with grace. Verse 11. There's judgment, no doubt. Now you are cursed from the ground. It will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a, a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. Immediately, it doesn't kill him. Just like when Adam and Eve were unfaithful to the instruction of God, they were kicked out of the garden, cursed. Thus, again, Cain is further cursed and further kicked out east of the garden. Cain said, this is ironic. Like, there will be a time when you sin purposely and deliberately, deliberately and the consequences come. And when the 
consequences come because I said it to my parents. That's not fair. Cain does exactly this. He has no concern for his brother. He rather has more concern about the consequences of his behavior. He has, throughout all of this, is unwilling to take any personal account for the situation in front of him. Yet he sits at, at the forefront of creating this situation. Sin clouds the eyes. And it makes, it feel, it makes, it, makes you feel like it's everyone around you. That's what's so dangerous about pride and arrogance within the heart. My punishment is too great to bear. Verse 14. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He's worried about his life now, and not the life of one he just took. In the midst of consequence, Trajectory of arrogance in Cain's life has clouded his eyes and he cannot see. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills, you see grace given again. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be on, taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him will, would slay him. And here you have, strikingly, Cain tells God, am I my brother's keeper and protector? God now exercising his protection over Cain. It's called grace. And yet, you will continue to see the seed of arrogance continue to manifest further and further, not just now into Cain's life, but now into five other generations. He's supposed to leave and be uh, sent out to the presence of the Lord. And east of the Eden, you see this in verse 16. And he's forced to go, just as Adam and Eve were forced out of the presence of the Lord. Cain is thrusted even further. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Supposed to be a wanderer. But look what he does. Verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And look what he does. He builds a city. Why? Because you need protection. The whole thing bleeds with arrogance and pride. Men unwilling to submit the instruction of God and abide by it humbly. You see the transition for the sake of time. I won't go through them all. But you see the the generations begin to be produced through Cain. Verse 19, you have a man who is far more lawless, full of pride and arrogance than his mother or brother. Verse 19, Lamech. Lamech, he's so godless, he distorts marriage itself. And rather than taking one wife, he takes two. Lamech took to himself two wives. He has no concern for the fear of the Lord. The name of the one was Adah, 
the name of the other, Zillah. And through that, they create a family. Look at his attitude in verse 23. So what is the writer doing, right? The writer is trying to show us the seed of arrogance as it manifests in through a family, generationally. How naive we are to think, and I've said this often, that sin is personal, and it doesn't affect anyone around us. See, when you read the scriptures, you not only fear sin for yourself and its own consequences on your own life, but for your own family and family's lives. Kills families, it destroys societies. As you will see in verse 23, Lamech said to his wife, Adal and Zillah, listen to my voice. Read Genesis, there's only one thing, or one who has a voice in which everyone can listen to, and it's the voice of God. Now he's godless. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. It's worse than Cain, for I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. He's godless in the sense that now he is even willing to strike a child. Cain's response is ironic. His family's response, which inherits this trajectory of arrogance, there's no worship. There's this arrogance of Turning their fist, even in verse 24, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, he mocks God and says, try me. And tempts him. So much to the extent that when you understand what the writer is doing with Genesis chapter 4, you understand when we get to Genesis chapter 6, it is from this family, Genesis chapter 6, that God says, as it takes form and it goes out into the world, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention or every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he, made man, he had made man on the earth and he was grieved seed of arrogance manifested in Cain and now on to five other generations has taken its course. God now sees the godlessness of the world and even grieves that he has even made it. What is the reader supposed to do? Fear the trajectory for themselves that it might find itself within themselves and fear that it might take place in the children's lives. But in all of this, it seems as the reader, the writer has wrote this account that somehow Eve has learned something. You'll notice the transition. I, I tried to emphasize this in the beginning of this first point, but now I transition to the second, the gracious hand of God. Her tone has changed. She no longer says, I have created a man like God. But rather, her tone has Humility in it. And Adam had relations with his wife again. She's unnamed. There's this position of humility that the writer has placed her in in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 4. 
but she still speaks. And she gave birth to a son named Seth. And look at how she speaks. God has appointed me another seed, offspring in the place of Abel. For Cain killed him. And she humbly recognizes that yes, while man and woman play a part in creating life children, that it is God who creates them and sustains them. And notice in this position of humility what happens next. Look at verse 26. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Enosh is another word for man. But it's not a man, child. It refers to this man who's weak and frail. What is the writer trying to do with the words that he's using in the story? He called his name Enosh, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The trajectory of arrogance destroys families, societies, and is, is unconcerned about the things of God. Yet in the narrative, we see that the, uh, the heart of humility, which lives dependently upon God, it is able to produce a family who depends upon Him. And God graciously gives to the world Seth in the midst of this other lineage of Cain, that when we get to Genesis chapter 6, and he fears, or God is not fearing, but is concerned about the evil which takes place upon the earth. As he looks upon the earth, he finds one person of Seth's family. I'm trying to set it up a little bit. Genesis chapter 9. If you read the generations of Noah, he comes from Seth. And Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Started out this whole morning just saying, pride is not a virtue. And the author wants you to look and watch and consider it for yourself so that you might not fear walking or that you might fear walking in its own trajectory. Could I respond now to our convictional response? We have much to learn from Eve. We have much to learn from Adam. We have much to learn from Cain. We could learn also from Abel. So if I am to reflect one thing that what struck me about this passage was the mediocre position of worship Cain had before the Lord as he made his offering. Pride and arrogance impacts our worship. Humility fuels it. What's striking to me about Abel, living in a society which is very prosperous, Abel 
To be fair, early on, they didn't have a financial currency program. More goats and sheep was your currency. And yet he was willing to give the Lord his first and best to show his heart of worship of wanting to be dependent upon him for his life. And it was for that that the Lord regarded his worship. I don't know how to say the matter clearly, but I wonder at times if we give the Lord our best. I look at a culture which looks at worship so casually. In a moment, a pastor might start talking about money. The pride and arrogance takes to rise within the individual. There is this temptation, and I warn you. First, let me say this. I want those who do give generously and faithfully to not heed these words, but only to encourage you. But for those of us who just come with an offering, whether it be by your presence, which is occasional, whether it be with your resources, which is merely an offering, I just ask, is there a seed of arrogance that you think that your worship is not to be thought of carefully? And the one way that helps me test this is learning to give both of my time and my resources so much to put me in the position of dependence, which forces me to show my desire to be dependent upon God. A convictional response like pride is not a virtue, but God, like when we come, one of the reasons why I love Sunday, it's the first day of the week. It's not the end of the weekend, guys. It's the first day of the week. And that's why we come to give them our best and our attention and our resources and say, Lord, use this for your glory, for it is you whom we are dependent upon for our Enough said there. Two. I thought carefully on this one. And it hits close. But you and I have heard the saying that an apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Parents, your children can see the quality of your worship. And they can perceive it better than you think if it's casual or sincere. I fear that we don't ask ourselves enough as parents do my children reveal to me the sincerity of my worship towards God. There's a reason why Paul sets in the standard for the elders, that elders have children who are 
walking with the Lord. Why? Because it is generally showing the sincerity of an elder's spiritual position before God. If we go up and our children, some of us will have more than others, all abandon the Lord, bare minimum, we should be asking ourselves, are we giving merely offerings? And my children have seen right through it. So the reason why you will find within the scriptures this heavy-handedness towards parents, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's where worship starts. Parents, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, so you shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up. So you shall bind them on your, them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontals on your forehead. If the only place which your children hear you speak of God is in your Sunday worship or is the only place in which they see you bow your head, which is in the Sunday worship, they will perceive the quality and the sincerity of your worship as casual. I'm just cautioning. These are convicting words, I think. Just to reflect. Am I sincerely Respondingly, responding with a heart of humility. It started with Eve. And the wonderful thing about the story of Cain and Abel is there's always the chance throughout the story to, to stop, to change away and respond differently. It's not like Eve, you're done because you had this in the beginning. No, God was gracious to her to give her Seth. And so do you and I. And just as we read of the gone throughout both the Old and the New Testament, he is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he loves making the proud and arrogant humble and receiving them to himself. I think Eve learned something. And praise God she did. Because it became the benefit to Seth and to Enosh and to you. Because when God was about to crush the world for their wickedness, he found Noah. He says, you can see it, and I'll read it once again. Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It will have its effect. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. How do you master it? You heed the word of God, humbly submitting yourself to his standards. What a humble example we have of those who do that. Who is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who humbled himself for ourselves. While we were yet arrogant and prideful sinners, Christ died for us. Whoever might believe in him, 
She said, act of humility to not perish, but have eternal life. And I love watching their lives. As parents, take hold of that truth, the gospel, and hand it off to your children. And I pray for them that they would carry on and reap the fruits of that humility. And you will start seeing a city, a church, families being utterly changed with these truths. Let's pray. Oh, it is tempting, Lord, to trust in our own accomplishments. I have versus God has. And it doesn't take a child to know the two different patterns. But we see it ourselves and others. But like Cain, we often have our eyes clouded by our own pride. Lord, wherever we might be, Lord, I pray that you would humble us. Let us not be haughty in our own eyes, not too quick to judge to others, but quick to judge ourselves. We know pride is not a virtue, so make us humble people. Teach us through your words. And let us fear the trajectory, not for ourselves, but our families, that they might walk in such an arrogant position. Let rather them see us walk in the humility of Christ who instructs and guides us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.